Our scripture this morning comes from Numbers chapter 13, verses 25 through 33. This is the New Living Translation. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit they had taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. This is the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God. One of the things I've discovered in uh, pastoral counseling is that there are people who experience great stress when they're faced with the unknown. Uh, it is not true of everybody. Uh, there are others who seem to thrive on adventure. They are at their best when they're facing a challenge or moving into a new community or taking on a new job or experiencing a transition. Uh, these people get a rush of adrenaline, a new spark of inspiration when they have to face the unknown and deal with something new. This sermon is not for them because this sermon is for those of us who become distressed and anxious when we don't know what lies ahead. That's why the message today is entitled Facing the Unknown. Uh, because there are many of us who want life to be predictable. If we're facing a situation, we want to know beforehand what the odds are, where this will end up. But the problem is that life is anything but predictable. Certainly, we're in unpredictable waters right now. There's a prayer in the old Methodist book of worship which begins, O Lord, since we don't know what a day may bring forth. That's a prayer I've been praying a few times lately. And I use that prayer frequently now because I'm reminded of how true it is in a literal sense for us. There is no way to predict what's going to happen to you or to me in the days that, that lie ahead. Right now, life is unpredictable. Uh, no one can tell you what will happen tomorrow or next week or into the future. You and I have to learn to face the future unafraid. There's an episode in the Old Testament which illustrates how we can face the unknown with faith and not with fear. Uh, it came early in the Exodus. The people of Israel had actually reached the borders of Canaan. Now picture this. They reached the very borders of Canaan, the promised land. Uh, they made camp within a stone's throw of that land that God had promised them. Moses was told to choose uh, outstanding representatives, one from each of the 12 tribes, people who were respected and trusted by the people. Their assignment was very simple, to cross the border, gather information. Um, Moses wanted to know everything he could uh, about the lay of the land, about the crops, about the people who already lived there, about the size of the cities and the strength of the fortifications. 
The mission took about 40 days. When they returned, the people crowded around to hear the report, and it was the proverbial good news, bad news report. The good news was that Canaan was flowing with milk and honey. They brought back a branch with a single cluster of grapes that was so large it took two of them to carry it. They also brought back figs and pomegranates. The people had been living on manna. Remember the daily stuff that fell on the ground and they would collect, but it was the same, same meal every day. Um, so um, their mouths must have watered at the sight of fresh fruit. Uh, that was good news. By the way, manna actually literally means tuna casserole, in case some of you are wondering. But seriously, the bad news was that the people who lived in Canaan were strong and well-armed. Their cities were well-fortified and secure. Evidently, the report caused the people to become anxious and agitated because Caleb, speaking for himself and Joshua, found it necessary to stand up and silence the people. Uh, actually, the Hebrew word um, sounds very much like hush, the very way you pronounce that Hebrew word. It was almost as if Caleb was saying, just hush for a moment. He silenced the people. And then he adds a word of confidence and assurance. Let us go up at once and occupy the land, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, according to chapter 14, verses 7 through 9, Joshua and Caleb report that the area is an exceedingly good and fair land and that the people of the land are no more than bread for us. And they get to the theological heart of what is at stake if the people do not enter the promised land. They say, do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. For the two faithful spies, the question is not who is taller or who has larger fortifications or who has more weapons. Rather, the issue is whether or not the people are going to trust God to keep God's promises and to bring the Israelites into the land. That was probably the sanest word that was spoken all day. The other spies argued against them and said that the people who lived there were too strong for them. The inhabitants would swallow up anybody who tried to invade the land. To the, to the fearful spies, the Canaanites had, had come to look like giants. And before these giants, the ten scouts felt like grasshoppers, the smallest edible, edible animal. We might say we are just like little shrimps compared to them today. The ten fearful scouts had managed, or excuse me, had magnified the odds, the forces against them to such an extent that they felt hopeless and helpless. Now, that magnification was all it took to turn the people of Israel around. Apparently, not even the promise of God's presence and power or the prospects of all the grapes and pomegranates in Canaan could tempt them to cross the border. Instead of marching in to possess the land, they turned around and went back to wandering in the wilderness, if you can imagine. Forty years, in fact, an entire generation would pass before the opportunity would ever come again. And by that time, many of them had died. In fact, of the 12 scouts, only Caleb and Joshua lived long enough to reach the promised land. Now, that story may be ancient history, but it's a classic textbook example of how fear of the unknown works. 
If you are standing on the doorstep of some opportunity in your life right now, if you're standing at some invisible door or boundary, if you are at some moment of decision or at a really difficult stage in life and don't really know what to expect um, next, if you're wrestling with some long entrenched or destructive pattern of living, if you're facing an unprecedented challenge like we all face today, the question is whether we will cross the border or turn back. Some of these opportunities come only once in a lifetime. And if we listen to our fears, they may never come again. So I want you to think with me for the next couple of minutes about how to deal with fear of the unknown. And I want to make three simple suggestions that are illustrated in this story from the Bible. Suggestion number one, this story strongly suggests that we should never overestimate the odds against us. You know, fear has a, make, a way of making giants of ordinary opponents. It magnifies the risk involved until uh, molehills become mountains. Now, that's how it works for me, uh, and I suspect that's how it works for some of you too. Some years back, I heard about an unusual incident that happened in St. Paul, Minnesota that was reported in the newspapers. The pastor of Arlington Hills Presbyterian Church was in his study one day uh, when a young man came into the office and asked to see him. The young man wore his hair long and shabby. He had an unkept beard and was dressed in rather tattered clothing. He refused to talk to anybody except the minister. When the pastor identified himself, the young man handed him a thick, dirty envelope and said, uh, I was paid to deliver this envelope to you. And then he simply turned and walked away. The minister's uh, first thought was that the envelope might uh, have some kind of hoax or perhaps a trick in it. So he placed it on his desk, reluctant to open it. And the longer it was there, the more dangerous it seemed. So at last, he called the police department, uh, and the head of the bomb squad came to the church. He took the envelope very gingerly outside and carefully cut into one corner with a knife. And when it was obvious that there was no bomb or explosive inside, he opened the envelope and discovered a sheet of typewriting paper wrapped around $11,000 in $100 bills. There was a handwritten note. This is given to Arlington Hills Presbyterian Church in honor of my dear mother with no signature. Now, when I first heard that story, I'll be honest, I waited for several weeks for some man in shabby jeans and long hair to come walking into my office and offer me such an envelope. He never showed up. But the point is, this is how fear works. In our imagination, the danger grows and grows. The obstacles seem to enlarge. And all the opponents seem to be like giants. There is a disaster waiting at every corner. When fear triggers and drives the imagination, it is so easy to overestimate the odds against you until you're paralyzed with fear. So don't ever, ever don't ever overestimate the odds against you. Secondly, don't underestimate your own resources. Reflecting on this Old Testament story, William Sloan Coffin Jr. said, fear distorts the truth, not so much by exaggerating the challenges we face in the world, but by underestimating our ability to deal with them. A lot of people have said it in different ways, but Harry Emerson Fosdick put it this way, it is not what life brings to us in her hands as much as what we bring to life 
in our spirits that makes the difference between people. It has always been that way. The 12 scouts crossed the same river. They climbed the same mountains. They surveyed the same cities. They watched the same inhabitants. And in fact, the majority report of the two faithful scouts and the, um, the, the minority report, excuse me, of the two faithful scouts and the majority report of the 10 fearful scouts agreed pretty much. The land was rich and fertile and the inhabitants were armed and strong. That was all true. But for one group, it spelled obstacle. And for the other group, it spelled opportunity and looked like the promised land. So how do we account for the fact that one person sees an opportunity while others sees an obstacle? The problems we face are not all that different. In fact, right now, we all face a similar challenge and a similar foe. It's fairly safe to say that nothing can happen to you that hasn't happened to others. I venture to say that we respond differently because we always react in terms of how we see ourselves and in terms of how we size up our own resources to overcome. There was a letter to the editor some time ago in a big city newspaper. The writer uh, was a man who had been recently widowed. His wife died of cancer. And in the letter, he expressed his bitterness. She was too young to die. She had too many gifts to share with others. There were things that she had left to do. And the whole tenor of his letter was that life was unfair and in the end, even absurd. Addie Klotz, at the time the article appeared in the newspaper, was the director of the Student Health Center at the University of Southern California. Addie was also at that time under treatment for cancer herself. And so she felt deeply for the man, but it bothered her that the letter seemed to support the idea that cancer is the worst thing that can happen in this world. And so she was moved to write a letter to the editor herself. She wrote... Cancer is not the worst thing that can happen. In fact, in many ways, it gives added meaning to life, even though I would not prescribe it to anyone. But having cancer is not the end of life. For many, it's the beginning and understanding of life. She wrote about the positive flow of energy that she felt coming in her direction from the many people who cared about her. And about how that was a source of vitality and new life for her. It was something she'd never experienced before. She said, I decided that my attitude would not be to describe myself as a cancer patient with a debilitating disease. But as a dynamic, exciting woman who at this moment in my life is faced with a really big challenge. I mean, is there anyone who doubts the importance of how we see ourselves in relationship to the circumstances around us. I mean, that's precisely what this story shouts at us. Looking at the very same set of circumstances as the 10 fearful scouts, Caleb and Joshua said, look, the Lord is with us. We are well able. We have nothing to fear. And if you see yourself as a child of God, endowed with inner resources of strength and courage and dignity and faith, you can shed that grasshopper image and face the unknown with confidence and hope. And then the final lesson this story teaches us is don't forget that there's help available. Joshua and Caleb clearly understood that. They knew that God had been with them throughout the journey. They wanted the people to remember the help that they'd already received. It was all the Lord's doing. 
God had already sent them safely across the Red Sea. God had sent manna from heaven when their food had given out. God had given them fresh water to drink. God had given visible signs of God's presence among them. And now God would be with them to bring them into the land that was promised to them. Don't be afraid. The Lord is with us. We have strength enough, resources enough, power enough because God is our helper. I saw some trivia statistics recently. I already, uh, I, I, I'd almost forgotten them and I remembered them and I went back and looked at them just last night. Uh, and, and this is the statistic that stayed with me. Uh, AAA said that in 2012, uh, they had to take care of over 4,000 drivers who had locked themselves out of their cars, even in this age of smart keys. Did I say 4,000 or 4 million? It's 4 million, okay? 4 million people who locked themselves out of their cars. Uh, and I guess uh, I drew some comfort from that because it means that I'm not alone. Um, and by the way, locking your keys out of your car seems to come at the worst possible time. So I'm going to tell you a story. Several years back when I was traveling to a general meeting of the church, I had left home late in the afternoon, had reached the Nashville area about uh, 1.30, a.m. Uh, with a few hours to go before I reached our hotel, uh, I pulled up to a Waffle House restaurant and went inside to grab a quick cup of coffee. And then it happened as I was putting the milk and the, and the uh, sweetener in my coffee, um, I realized that I locked my keys in my car, with the car running, by the way. My new Bonneville had these electronic door locks that made it virtually impossible to use the old, uh, you know, coat hanger trick. Uh, and if you want to know what frustration was, that was it for me. I was bone tired. I was ready for a nice bed to rest my weary body. My head was spinning from this marathon drive. I walked around the car several times, like Joshua walking around the city of Jericho, but the doors didn't open. I went back into the Waffle House and I sat down and I shared my predicament with the waitress. And a few minutes later, unbelievably, she returned and said, hey, there's a guy here who says he can help. I had no idea what this guy could do, but I was willing to find out. He said he'd opened hundreds of car doors before. And he even had this thin metal device that he enabled him to slide down between the side of the window and the body of the car so that he could manually uh, trip the door uh, open. We went out to the parking lot and with the skill of a surgeon, he inserted the metal band inside of my car door. A few minor adjustments were made, not more than 60 seconds, and my door was open. I had no idea who he was. He could have been a professional car thief for all I know, but I was grateful, so grateful that I bought his breakfast. I think there, those are some of the most beautiful words in the English language, by the way. There is somebody here who can help. Caleb and Joshua believed that. They knew God was with them to help them. God had already delivered them from the land of Pharaoh. God had already been with them in their journey across the wilderness. And God would be with them as they crossed over into the promised land. And God would be waiting for them on the other side. They knew that help was available. And that's what you and I need to remember most. 
You may be standing at a moment of decision in your life right now. There may be some big changes taking place. You're passing through a very trying stage in your life. Nobody can tell you precisely what's coming next. That kind of sounds like where we're all at, doesn't it? You may have lost someone who's been so much a part of your everyday life that you can't even imagine what life will be like without them. Or perhaps you've reached a point in your life where there are changes that have to be made in your lifestyle, your habits, in your pattern of living relating to others across the border. There's freedom. And if you're in that kind of situation, and if the odds against you seem immense, and your own resources seem so small by comparison, then I have great good news for you. There is somebody here that says they can help. Amen. I'm now going to invite us all into a time of prayer. This is a bidding prayer. And what that means is I'm just going to, in this prayer, um, share a phrase. And then I'm going to sit for a moment and allow us to be in silence together. And then I'll read another phrase. And at that point, you'll be invited into another brief moment of silence. This is a way of acknowledging that, you know what, I don't have all the words to pray, all the right things to say. I bring my trust and my hope in God, just as I know all of you do too. And so in this time of praying together, let us um, be open to the voice of God and offer our own prayers to God in these stretches of silence as we pray a bidding prayer. Let's pray. Oh God, we offer our prayers to you today. In all ways, may we commit our life to your guidance. In every moment, may we receive your peace. In all seasons, may we trust that you are at work. In the midst of this current storm, let us hope in you, knowing you will see us through. In times of despair, help us to deepen our prayer. And at all times and in all places, may we allow our praise for you to flow. This prayer we offer in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ who loves us, who's modeled for us how to live, and who has taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.